John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Thank you, girls. Thank you, Lizzie, Gabby, and Sophie. It sure is a pleasure to serve God with your family, isn't it? <clears throat> yes. <laughs> and they said, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What is it about the battle between light and darkness that we find so relatable and so captivating to us? In just a few days... Star Wars 8, The Last Jedi, comes out. Is anybody excited about that? As you can see, that's a big deal in our culture. Can everybody read this hat back there? It says dark side on it. You know, we are captivated by the dark side. We are drawn to the dark side. But we're also drawn by the light side. We're drawn by good. And we have this battle in our lives in very real ways every day between the dark side and the light side. Whether we're a Star Wars fan or not, we're fascinated by the dark side. In our Advent series this month, Let There Be Light, which we're kicking off today, we are mining the depths and riches of the Advent season, the coming of Jesus, the Christ, the light of the world into the earth, into our world to rescue sinners. But today, we're also going to explore the dark side, the dark side of sin, the darkness of the world around us, the dark side, the darkness within us, where we are the weakest and worst and lost in sin. <clears throat> Our series text for this entire month is one of the richest texts in all of Scripture. It's John 1, 1 through 18, the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John, which are his prologue. His opening or the synopsis of his entire gospel account of the person and works of Jesus the Christ. And if, uh, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, would you open with me to John 1, 1 through 18? You can turn that on in your app. Or... And if you would like to write in your Bible, which I do, would you put a bracket above verse 1 and then another bracket below verse 18? And that'll mark this section in your Bible as a unit, one unit that we're going to be looking deeply into over the next four weeks during Advent season this year. We'll get it started this week, but this is the unit that will be in this month, the prologue, the opening of John. These 18 verses express the most profound truth in the universe, that God, infinite, eternal God, took on flesh, became human, became one of us to rescue us from our sins. Through the birth canal of a woman, incarnation means he took on flesh. God, the spirit being, took on flesh, became a human, one of us. That's what incarnation means. And that's what Christmas celebrates, the incarnation of the Son of God to rescue humans, to give us life, to give us purpose, and to give his Father glory. 
In this first section of the prologue, we're going to look at today the first five verses, which the girls just quoted, and we're going to be looking into together today. John marvelously, in these five verses, presents three truths about Jesus, the Word of God, which explain why he and only he can overcome the darkness in the world and the darkness in our lives. Why he and only he can overcome our darkness. That's what he's talking about in the first five verses as he opens up this great and marvelous gospel account. And in view of the darkness of sin which envelops every single human, you and me and the world around us, we'll see we need Jesus to overcome our darkness. So here's why he and only he can overcome it. Three main reasons we get from this text. The first is Jesus overcomes our darkness because of who he is. Because of who he is. Let's look at the first two verses as we open up the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Where have we seen those words before? In the beginning. Where have we seen those words? Genesis 1-1. That's right. It's how the, the entire Bible opens with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning. But instead of in the beginning, God created, John has in the beginning was the Word. So what he does here is he puts Jesus in eternity past, before the creation of the world, of the universe, before the creation of time. Jesus, there he is, in eternity past. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He is part of the triune Godhead. That Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit existed in perfect harmony and relationship before the creation of time. And John sets the stage for his book's focus on Jesus' deity. That Jesus, the man, is God eternal who did appear in space-time history as an actual person for a very specific and special reason. In the beginning was the Word. Let's look at that word, Word. The concept of the Word, which is logos, is a loaded with meaning, signifying some of the most important principles in the universe. And John knew exactly what he was doing in his opening words, claiming Jesus to be this Word, the Word, the logos. It had loaded, it was loaded with meaning for both the Hebrew audience and the Greek audience at the time. By his word, the Hebrew readers knew instantly. By his word, God did all kinds of things in the Old Testament. It was by his word that he introduced the Abrahamic covenant. It was by his word that he gave Israel the Ten Commandments. It was by his word that he spoke scripture to the prophets. It was by his word so much more throughout the Old Testament. And now, John, right off the bat, introduces Jesus as the incarnation of God, the Word of God. And he spends the rest of his book recording what God as this man, Jesus, did to further reveal God's character, God's power, and God's purposes. That's what he's kicking off, initiating in his opening words. And what needs to burst into our understanding today, as it did Back then in the Greek mind, the Greek mind saw the Logos as the reason for life and an impersonal force. Much like the Star Wars philosophy today. An impersonal force. 
that's how the Greek audience took it. But what John says right here, off the bat, is that the word, the logos, is not an impersonal force. It is a person. It is a very specific person. By claiming this role as the word here, Jesus, Jesus claims to be the creator of life, the authority of life, and the very reason and purpose for life. No other religious leader would ever claim such a thing, to be the very reason for life. Not Gandhi, not Buddha, not Marx, nobody, not Muhammad. No other religious leader would claim to be the very source and reason and purpose for life itself. Yet the Bible claims Jesus as these, and he readily accepted the title. So here, listen friends, John is answering for us all, anyone who ever asks, what am I living for? What is life for? It's for the word, the reason of life, the logos is Jesus. And everyone seeks this question because if we could understand what life is for, if we could understand why we are living, what we are for, and if we could bring our life into conformity with that, then what would happen? We would understand the universe. We would understand our purpose. We would understand the mission that we have in life. We could realize our potential. And we could have our hungry souls fulfilled for the first time in our lives if we could find that out. And here's what John does in the opening of his gospel as he gives us this. The word is a person. The person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, incarnate. Hail the incarnate deity. We sing. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. John is setting up his entire book to be read in light of the truth in these opening verses. John is essentially saying the deeds and works of Jesus are the deeds and works of God himself. And if that isn't true, may this whole book be considered blasphemous. There's a lot in those first two verses, isn't there? The incarnation of God makes Christianity, makes Jesus unique. Other religions say that humans can become gods. But Christianity says, no, no, no. That's backwards. God became one of us in the incarnation that we celebrate at Christmas time. So the first step to light and life is acknowledging that Jesus is who he says he is. He's eternal God. And that gives him the power to overcome darkness because of who he is. The second trait of Jesus, which explains why he and only he can overcome, rescue us from, and eliminate all darkness, is what he did. What he did. That's where John goes next in verse 3. Let's look at verse 3 together. He writes next, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. This is saying the same thing twice for emphasis, a positive statement, a negative statement. He's really serious about this. John continues to draw on Genesis 1, the creation account here, by linking the word and the creative power of the word. Let me ask you to think back to Genesis 1. What was the creative action that God took to bring everything into, into existence? What did he do to create the world? He spoke, that's right. And God said, each creative day says, and God said, let there be light. Let the earth bring forth. God spoke. And I still remember the first time that I grasped this. That Jesus, who we celebrate his birth at Christmas, Jesus, my Lord and Savior, the man who walked on earth and died and 
rose again. This Jesus is the creator of everything. He's the creator of the world. How much power does it take to create the universe and everything in it? How important is this? Listen to how other New Testament writers build their theology on this very foundational truth. Paul in the, in the great Colossians 1 begins, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. This is Jesus. The writer of Hebrews in his opening verses, also in verse 1 and 2, it begins the same way. Long ago, he says, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also he created the world. See, the point is that if God, if Jesus is the creator of everything, everything that exists, do you think that he has the power to overcome darkness? Yes, he does. And we can trust him because of who he is, and we can trust him because of what he's done. He's creating the entire world. And the third trait of Jesus, was, which explains why he and only he can overcome darkness, is what he brings. What he brings. This is where John goes next in verses 4 and 5. Let's look at those. In him was life, and the, light, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So light invades the kingdom of darkness, Satan and sin's kingdom of darkness. And although darkness may reject the light, darkness can never overcome the light. Just as a single small candle can dispel darkness in a dark room, light will overcome the dark. There's an ancient story told to prove this point about a cave speaking with the sun in the sky. The story goes, a cave underground told the sun what it was like to be there. The sun invited the cave to come up and see the light. The cave did and was amazed by the light. So it invited the sun to come down and see the darkness. The sun went, but there was no darkness. Get that? The light will always overpower the darkness. Jesus overcomes darkness because of what he brings. As we learn in verses 4 and 5, what does he brings? He, he, he brings a few things. What does Jesus bring to overcome the darkness? First, he brings life to people. He brings life to people. Life does not exist on its own. Life was not created by nothing. It did not come from nothing. That would be impossible. Note verse 4 doesn't say, though, that life is by him. It is not through him. It is in him. And again, if life itself is in Jesus, can we trust that our darkness can be overcome by him? We can. What more does God bring to people? In verse 4, it next says, And the life was the light of men. He brings something that is inseparable from life, and that is light. They go hand in hand. Life and light. How important is light? One writer explains this. He tells a story of a bike ride that he took recently, deep into the woods on a trail. He didn't bring a phone, and he left too late to go as far as he did. 
By the time he turned around, he was miles away from home and had no light. It was completely dark outside. As he rode back, at times he said he couldn't see the trail's edges on either side. He had no clue what was on either side. He was alone and in the dark, and he said this is the only time he remembered ever being afraid as an adult of the dark. He couldn't flip a switch. He couldn't call someone to solve his problem. When he finally made it to the dim lights of civilization, though, at that moment he saw lights in the distance. He was flooded with relief and sheer joy that he had made it. Now, the people that John originally wrote to here, they didn't have street lights. And unless they had a lamp and the means to light a lamp, they were very used to, when the sun went down, groping around in the darkness. And so light was very significant to them and very significant when Jesus said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus didn't say, I'll point you to the light or that I'll give you the light. He says, I am the light. I am the only true light. John tells us here and many more times in the gospel that the true light overcomes the darkness. The true light overcomes all the darkness in the world and all the darkness in our own lives. John uses the word light 23 times in his gospel and another six times in 1 John. God said in Genesis 1, let there be physical light. And in John 1, God is saying, let there be spiritual light. And that is Jesus. And that's so much more significant to us than even physical light. I want to encourage everyone to do something. As we kick off this four-week sermon series in John's prologue, his synopsis of the whole gospel of John, I want to encourage everybody this month to read the Gospel of John. Four weeks is plenty of time to do it. But as you read it, look for those 23 times where the word light appears. And you'll notice that it's at climactic times and very powerful times. It would just be a, a special spiritual encounter for this whole church if we all read John over the next four weeks. Would you agree to do that? Does that sound good? Look to your spouse or kids or, or family right now or friends and say, hey, that's a good idea. Let's do that. Go ahead. Say that. All right, all right. Just trying to up the commitment level there. <laughs> In verse 5, we see that the light comes for a purpose. Why does the light come? We see that it comes to overcome the darkness. That's what it does. That's why he came. So let's, if that's the purpose of the light coming, to overcome the darkness, let's talk about the darkness for a little while. And we'll start with the darkness of Christmas. The darkness of Christmas. And I've grouped the darkness of Christmas into three areas that we'll look at right now. The first is God's enemies. God's enemies are a dark side of Christmas. Satan, his demons, and people under their influence have tried desperately throughout history to kill the life and extinguish the light. Satan tried to destroy Israel multiple times, and he tried to destroy the kingly line from which the Messiah would be born multiple times. He tried to tempt Jesus in the desert because if Jesus just sinned one time, then he wouldn't be an effective, perfect sacrifice for all of humankind. It was Satan behind King Herod, all the baby boys in Bethlehem. All those attempts failed. But today, God's enemies reject Jesus still and try to extinguish the light of the saving word of Jesus and its influence in the world. 
The clouding of who and what to actually celebrate at Christmas time is part of that darkness. And that's the second area of the darkness of Christmas is false worship. False worship at Christmas time. Let's go back to our Star Wars illustration here. The dark side. Dun, 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 dun. I wanted to play that music. I really love that music. But it was easier just to hum it. It sticks, doesn't it? The dark side of Christmas. Let's talk about what that is in our context in America. One of the dark sides of Christmas worship is consumerism. That's one of the things we face in America. It feels so good to buy things. We like having stuff. We like to buy things. And our economy depends so heavily on us buying things that consumerism has really become a religion in our country and its worship is buying things. And none of us is immune from it, especially at Christmas time. I just want to say guard yourselves, brothers and sisters, from falling in to that trap of false worship at this time of the year. Another dark side is the secularization of Christmas. This is a Christmas story about Jesus himself, and it's become secular. Secular is a belief that God doesn't exist, or if he does, isn't relevant enough in any meaningful way for us to care about. And you can see this effect on Christmas celebrations all over the place. Guard your hearts against that and be careful, friends. Another is getting overly caught up in the sentimentalism of the season. This one strikes me because I'm, I'm a sentimental guy. As one of our small group coaches described it so well, Catlin Sardina, he said this, he said, In America, Christmas is a season of romantic sensationalism that averts the eye from Christ. And I appreciate that as a caution. I love what Paul Tripp, a Christian author, says about this. He says, I have no problem with the seasonal stories of sleds, snowmen, gifts, and Christmas parties, nor do I stand in opposition to singing silly seasonal songs, which I'm glad about because I love those. What I am concerned about is that each Advent season, our children are told a false story. This false rendition of the Christmas story puts human pleasure at the center. It tells them to look for life in the creation rather than in the creator. It tells them lies about who they are and what they need. It presents a world that needs no tree of sacrifice, no Messiah lamb, and no life-giving resurrection. But a true understanding of Christmas, of the light, sees its light and worships him. So how do we recommend that we celebrate Christmas time with true worship? One big answer is Advent. Advent. We talk about the Advent season and the Advent candles and Advent calendars. You hear that word all over the place. Maybe not everybody here understands what that means. I know I didn't in 2003 when I first came to Lake City. I had no idea what Advent was. So let me just tell you briefly what Advent and the Advent season is. Advent literally means coming. It's about the coming of the Messiah, Jesus, into the world. And the Advent season is a four-week season up before Christmas with daily or weekly times set aside for learning and celebrating all the details about Jesus' glorious first Advent and then also anticipating his second Advent, his second coming that hasn't happened yet, that we have prophecies about and our hope rests in. 
So Advent season is a gift to Christians because it's an opportunity to talk in our homes and in our churches about the most important things in life. What is this season all about? Why did Jesus have to come? Who am I and what is my life all about? That's what we talk about in the Advent season. We have the Advent candle. The first candle was lit this week. It was called the prophecy candle. Remember that? The coming of Jesus. We talk about this in our house as we light the candle. He's coming. He's coming. Who's coming? The Messiah is coming. They've looked for centuries over. Children were raised for hundreds of years before Jesus came. Think, could it happen in our lifetime? Maybe, son. Maybe, daughter. And then they grew up and died. And it didn't happen, and it didn't happen. But when the fullness of time came, God sent his son in the form of a baby to rescue his people from their sins. So that's the first candle. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Psalms, all kinds of prophecies, hundreds of years before Jesus. We study those. And then as it gets closer, the coming gets closer. The second candle is the Bethlehem candle. We're getting very close now. We're in the town that it happens. The third candle is the shepherd's candle. And the fourth candle is the angel's candle who proclaim the time has come. And then on Christmas Eve, we light the Christ candle, the white candle. The advent of Jesus the Christ has come. Salvation has come to you and to me from our sins. Eternal life has come. I don't have time to examine all of the Christmas traditions in Advent. There are many, and they're so deep with spiritual meaning. But that's why we're selling the book, Finding the Treasure in Christmas, down at the Faith at Home Center. And I want to encourage you to pick this up and journey through all kinds of different uh, Christmas traditions and the deep spiritual meaning in them and the celebration of true worship at this time of the year. But I do want to talk about two of them this morning, the tree and the lights. The Christmas tree. Jesus as the tree is pictured hundreds of years before his birth in Jeremiah 33, which says the righteous branch who springs up for David to execute justice and righteousness and to bring salvation and security to those who believe. And then Martin Luther, about 500 years ago from now, was, is attributed to being the first to bring an evergreen tree adorned in lights into his living room. And here's what that represented, the everlasting Love and life of God is represented by the evergreen tree. And of course, the lights are to represent the light of the world. And you bring that tree into your living room, into your life. That goes a little farther when you go and cut down a tree at a tree farm. How many people get their Christmas tree every year from a tree farm? You do that? Raise your hand if you do that, if that's part of your traditions. Okay, how many people pull it out of a box from the garage? Hey, there's more box from the garage. I kind of went back and forth in the services. That's what we do too. But you can still see and enjoy the true worshipful meaning of the act of going to cut down your own Christmas tree. What do you do when you do that? You get the family in the car and you go. And you go to the field where all the trees are standing in their majestic glory in their native environment. And you find that perfect tree. And you go and you take your saw. And you rip its flesh until it dies. <laughs> and then you bundle it up and throw it on your car and drive it home and put it in your living room where it brings you great joy. <laughs> now, <laughs> you haven't looked at it that way, huh? 
But it's good to look at it that way. Here's what that represents. The tree standing in its majestic native environment is Jesus in heaven being served and worshiped by the angels in face-to-face communion with God the Father and, and the Holy Spirit. And when the fullness of time had come for him to rescue sinners from our sin and redeem and restore us, he came and had his flesh ripped and his blood shed to atone for the sins of you and for me. So they are washed away forever. And we invite that tree, that righteous tree, into the living room of our hearts. And he brings us great joy. There is so much meaning. This is just a taste of what true worship can look like in your homes. The true worship of the life and the light of Christmas is amazing. And I want to encourage you to to pursue that kind of worship in your homes this year and every year hereafter. But the dark side is strong, though. God's enemies are strong. The pull to false worship is strong. And another dark side of Christmas, my third area that is also strong for some, is pain. Pain. It's a wonderful time of year, but if you've suffered the loss of a loved one, whether recently or years ago, as you know, the holidays can be a very hard and difficult time of year. And people here are going through that. It's very common. And I want to encourage you, if you're going through something like that and kind of dreading Christmas this year, to consider connecting with our grief share group. In the bulletin this weekend, it says, For many, the holiday season is not one filled with anticipation and joy. If this describes you, why not come to Grief Share and allow God's Word to begin your journey back to joy? I appreciate our Grief Share leaders and the ministry that they're doing, and I want to encourage you to come find comfort there. It's every Sunday night right here at church. If that doesn't work, still connect with us at the church. For others, the pain is loneliness, for others, it's abuse. And at Christmas time, it's not enjoyable for you because that's the time where you're forced to put on a fake smile and suffer through it. Others, it's guilt. Whatever the case may be, can I ask you, whatever you need, to let us know. We can't walk with you unless we know about it. You know, God says that whatever it is, he'll give you a way out of your temptation. He'll give you a way out, but he never says to do it alone. What do you need? Do you need fellowship with people? Relationship? Do you need accountability? Do you need to meet with a pastor? Do you need counseling? We can help with those, with any of those. I pray that you'll let us know about that. Even if it's just one person, then it's worth it. The Bible says God will give you a way out. He never says never do it alone. And I'm going to say that too. Don't try to go through the holidays alone. Please, let the church be the church. That's what we're here for and we'll love it. So Jesus overcomes our darkness. Jesus and only Jesus overcomes our darkness. So what is it that we have to do? What is it that we have to do? And Christmas traditions speak to that as well in the Christmas ornaments. Christmas ornaments is one of everybody's favorite things about Christmas. Each ornament's got a special meaning. The book talks about a variety of meanings for the different colors, and we attach certain life seasons and moments, memories to those. But no ornament is significant as the red ornament. The red ornament, which represents 
our sin and our pain being hung on the tree completely and totally forever eliminated by the blood of Jesus. This is our family a few nights ago doing this very thing. And I want my kids and I want this whole church to know that whatever it is, the sin and the guilt, the temptations, the things that you struggle with, the pulls from the dark side, the pain, it can be hung on the tree and completely washed away by the blood of Jesus. Amen? Amen. That's what we do. And that's true worship of the life and light of Christmas. And as we go to our next steps, I have two next steps that I want to encourage and ask everyone to commit before God today. The first is, I will worship the light this Christmas. I will worship the light this Christmas. The first part of that is salvation itself. Maybe you haven't crossed that line and said, I'm going to repent from my own sin and self-sufficiency and self-worship. It's not working. I'm going to die to myself and become alive in Jesus Christ, the giver of life and light. John 8.24, in John 8.24, Jesus says, I told you that unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Friends, no one who rejects Jesus as the light can be saved, can be given life and light. In fact, John says that the whole purpose that he wrote this gospel account of the life and, and works of Jesus is this. Chapter 20, verse 31, he says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Repent from your sins and believe in Jesus to receive his life and light today. If you need to talk to somebody about that, we're always praying up front after the this, every service, or you can write that on your communication card as well and meet with us. For the rest, now, for the rest of life, it's growing in our worship of the light, growing in our worship and our satisfaction and our victory over all aspects and elements of the dark side. So, yeah, we're doing the Advent devotionals in our house this week, and we're, we're going to continue. We're just in the Overstreet household, at least I am, uh, so filled with our love and appreciation for Jesus and his sacrifice for us and his purpose and his guidance for us, that it's in that place where you get the freedom from the dark side and its effects that you're looking for. How about you? Are you in that place? You know, it's when, it's when we're fully satisfied in worshiping Jesus that we don't need to keep walking in the dark side. What is it that has you in its grip in the dark side? Whether it's too much alcohol or smoking and drugs or porn or TV or romance books or flirting with someone who's not your spouse or too much time in video games escaping the realities of responsibilities or being mean and angry, what part of the dark side is it that pulls you? Or is it putting judgmental condemnations on the people who do any of these things? Let's be done with those things right now. There's no place for this up here anymore. Right? I'm going to throw that at the foot of the cross. I was going to go for the tree, but I didn't want to knock it down. <laughs> That's the point of worshiping the true light and growing in our worship of him. He will fill us and release us from the grip of the darkness in our lives. He will. And then 
The next, next step is I will reflect the light this Christmas by, and there's a few bullet points there. Here's the point. The light was never meant for us to keep to ourselves. Here's how the progression of the incarnation works. The incarnation is God, the spirit being, took on flesh to become one of us. Now, through his resurrection and our faith in him, now he indwells all his believers through his spirit. That's the second part of the incarnation. Then the third, it progresses even more as Christians and churches go out into the world, bringing his light and life into the world. See how Jesus, the light and life, fills the earth through us? That's our mission and that's our responsibility now. So how do we do that this Christmas? How do we reflect the light at this Christmas time? And I have a few things. You can write one or two or three down on your notes or just pray in commitment to God. Here's some ideas. The first one is the most fun, of course, exuberant celebration. I want you to commit to celebrating Christ exuberantly this Christmas. The next is extravagant giving. Jesus gave generously and extravagantly to us, and he says, now you go and do the same. You give, whatever that looks like, to the church, to missionaries, to people in need. You know, the giving tree is up. This is the last weekend. The giving tree is in our foyer. That goes to people who don't have the funds for Christmas in their family. You can go down there and they'll tell you all about it. Whether it's the giving tree, which it would be great for you to stop by there, or just being mindful of people who have nothing but loneliness and pain and lostness around us this Christmas. Let's not keep the light for ourselves. We need to reflect the light. Last suggestion I have today is the invitation cards. There's a bin of them as you exit the door. Even if you've never done this before, uh, these are great to invite people to come back and hear the rest of our Advent season, the truth about the light of Christmas. People are so open to this right now. If you don't feel like striking up conversations with friend, uh, strangers, just leave these wherever you go. Grab them. They're, you know, we have plenty. We're not going to run out, I don't think. Leave them in the bathroom stalls. That's a captive audience. It's just an idea for you. <laughs> it's one of my favorite things to do. Maybe TMI, I don't know. Just trying to give you ideas. To be the light, to spread it into the world. Commit to doing these things this Christmas. Let's not let this Advent Christmas season go by wasted in any way. Let's close in prayer, get these things to God, and then we'll go into communion. Oh, Lord God, it's been fun just to see, wow, the apostle, uh, or the gospel of John. John was such a, an amazing writer of truth, and, and what a blessing it is to look into that truth a little bit together as a church family today, heading into the Advent season of Christmas time. I pray that your spirit will meet all of our spirits exactly where they are and where they need to go next, that we'll be filled with joy and, and revelry and the right things and, and who we are in Christ and your goodness and your life and light, and that you've overcome the world and will over the darkness in the world and will overcome the darkness in our hearts as well. So much to be thankful for. God, we're going to go into communion now where we'll Again, be reminded that the purpose of Christmas is Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday when your work was fulfilled on earth. I pray that you'll make this entire month very special to all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.